Hello, hello, and welcome back to Art House Garage, the snob-free film podcast where we make art house indie, classic, and foreign cinema accessible to the masses. I'm your host, Andrew Sweatman, and today we are continuing Season 5, Contemporary Asian Filmmakers, by turning from Korea to Japan. Today's film is Shoplifters from Japanese director Hirokazu Koreeda. Shoplifters is a beautiful film about a family living in poverty in modern-day Tokyo. This film came out in 2018 uh, when it won many awards, including the Palme d'Or at Con, the, the Cannes Film Festival, which is one of the most kind of prestigious film awards in the world. Um, this film is a favorite of many, and it's in my personal top 50 of the last decade when I did that ranking. Um, and it's one that I'm really excited to discuss with today's guest. I'm joined again by Omaya Jones, film podcaster and curator of the Arkansas Times film series. Omaya, how are you today and what have you been watching lately? I'm doing pretty good. It's been a stressful week, but I'm I'm ready for the weekend, and I'm ready for hopefully the end of the NBA Finals tonight. Oh, um, yes, which you know, Game Five is happening <laughs> as we record. Art was going to happen the night that we're recording this, um, <laughs> and as a result of several things, including current events and the NBA Finals, um, I've been watching a lot less lately. Mm-hmm. I was looking at Letterbox, and I've only watched three. I've logged three things this month. Um, one of which was shoplifters, which we're going to discuss today. Uh, and then I also went to one of the ACS events to see one night in Miami where I saw you there. Yes. Um, and then the last thing, or really the first thing that I watched this month on the first was, um, an Albert Brooks film called real life. That's on the criterion channel Uh as part of, um, I guess a number of Albert Brooks films that they've got going now. Um, and it's, it's this weird is scripted. But the premise is that it's a documentary that's supposed to document the real life of this family uh, in Arizona. Uh, And so they have uh, this camera crew who are wearing these weird cameras that you actually wear on your head. And it describes like the, the, the microphones are built into the helmet contraption that the cameramen wear. And it's meant to mimic, um, I guess human audio hearing it's really weird. If you go to letterbox, actually pull up real life, the background image is like someone with this camera thing on their head. Huh. And it's really strange. Um, but it, it's, it's a farce, right? And everything sort of sort of devolves as the character, uh, that Albert Brooks plays, which is himself, um, sort of devolves into insanity uh, throughout <laughs> the course of the film. And like everything just kind of falls apart. <laughs> Sounds bizarre and interesting. <laughs> Well, uh, as far as what I've been watching, yeah, same. So ACS, the Arkansas Cinema Society, had Filmland recently. I did a podcast episode about that. Uh, They showed some really great stuff. I saw One Night in Miami as well. And uh, the other three things, I was able to go each night, which was great. Um, The Way I See It, which is a documentary about the White House photographer Pete Souza. And then Nomadland, the Chloe Zhao-directed Francis McDormand starring... Uh, which is just wonderful. It's sort of a documentary-esque, um, but it's it's also scripted, but it contains almost Agnes Varda-like you know, in, in the way that it's like mixing documentary and narrative. Uh, and then the last night was Dreamland, which is a, a kind of a Bonnie and Clyde s- sort of style uh, story, but it kind of deconstructs that and it's uh, it's kind of like, what would these people actually be emotionally experiencing if they were doing something like this? Um, and it's, uh, stars Margot Robbie, which that was kind of the main draw for me. Cause I really like her. Um, 
And then and the last one, which was was a virtual screening, is a documentary called "You Cannot Kill David Arquette," which is interesting. He, David Arquette, the actor from the Scream movies, um, had a, he has a, a kind of a checkered history with the wrestling industry, pro wrestling. Uh, he, he did a pro wrestling thing as like a publicity stunt that then parlayed into a, a, a kind of a quick, it seems like it's kind of short lived pro wrestling career. Um, but wrestling fans hate him like big time. And so this, uh, and, and it also kind of messed up his acting career. So this documentary was made last year and it's kind of him trying to redeem himself and become a wrestler again. So that's an interesting thing. So I'm hoping to talk about all of those actually on separate podcast episodes. I don't go into too much depth on any of them. Um, but yeah, so watch some really good stuff. Uh, and, and then one final thing that I did watch recently is, uh, kind of in the Halloween spirit, the TV version of what we do in the shadows. Have you seen the film of that or, or any of the TV episodes or TV show? I, I have seen the film and I've seen, I think like the first episode of the TV series. Um, yeah. I actually, I have a, a, a housemate and he was watching it the other night yeah. and there was an episode that um, Taika Waititi actually, I guess, guest starred on, on or uh-huh. guest, guested on an episode and uh, Tilda Swinton was also in it. What? And so I was like, oh, maybe I should actually go through this. <laughs> yeah. It's one that I, like, I've seen two episodes now is all I've seen. But I watched the first one a while back. I love the movie. And uh, it's, you know, if you, if people don't know, it's uh, Taika Waititi and, um, well, Taika Waititi directed the film, I believe. And it's like a, a mockumentary about vampires living in New York City. Or actually, like Staten Island, I think. And um, it's... It's just really this weird dark humor. It's so funny. It's got uh, the movie has Jermaine Clement and um, I'm trying to think who else is in the in the movie. But then the show has uh, Matthew Barry, who I know from the IT crowd, and I've seen him in a few other things. And he's got this really just bizarre comedic timing, but he really cracks me up. Um, yeah, and then I think there's some guest stars pop up along the way, so I'm excited to. Uh, to keep going with it. But yeah, it's, it's really funny. It's, Cause like, I don't know, around this time of year, I kind of want to watch something scary, but <laughs> this is like not actually scary. It's mostly just funny. Um, so it's, it kind of gives me that Halloween vibe without, <laughs> you know, <laughs> keeping me up at night because I'm scared of it. So anyway, <laughs> um, you know, at one point they talked about doing a sequel called we are wolves, right? Ah, Which yes. is, you know, just like werewolves. But if you say it like <laughs> we're wolves, <laughs> you, like, yeah, it's almost like uh, you can say it like it's like, you know, like people who practice accents yeah, will have like uh, key phrases that they recite to get into it. And it's almost like if you were trying to do like a New Zealand yeah. accent, you could you could <laughs> use the phrase werewolves. It's like werewolves. Werewolves. I don't know. <laughs> Which, yeah, the werewolves are so funny in the movie. Uh, and then it's, I can't remember the actor's name either, but Murray from Flight of the Concords, which I loved that show back in, in college. And he's so funny. And uh, yeah, the werewolf scenes are hilarious in that. Yeah, what an interesting little universe they've created in this kind of, you know, mockumentary style. It's really, uh, I'll, I'll highly recommend the movie and the show, which I think are all pretty easy to find uh, streaming. So, yeah, there's my Halloween recommendation, I guess. <laughs> <laughs> all right, well, let's get into today's movie. Uh, here is our discussion of Shoplifters. Hey. 
どうしたのママはそれ食べさせたら返してきなよどうそと寒いんだよなキャキャだねね誘拐だよあれどう見てもえー、めっちゃ可愛いじゃん選ばれたんかな私たちユリが映ってる男女が警察署に連絡したことでおーまずいなこれまずいよな Hey, this is、uh, Connor Smith,、uh, filmmaker from Arkansas, calling in to talk about shoplifters. So I just finished watching it,、um, or watching it for、uh, what was the third time for me, third or fourth. The past couple of viewings was just absolutely floored.、Uh, I'm a huge Coriata fan, and、uh, often when people ask me, like, who's my favorite director,、uh, I will say Coriata. There's just an empathy and a nuance that he brings to every story he tells, and it's just absolutely heart wrenching, but also、uh, life giving all simultaneously. And Shoplifters is just another instance of that. <laughs> When I think of、uh, what specifically what he does in this film, I think of like some of his peers in America and how right now, as like American audiences, we are subjected to watching.、Uh, Bruce Wayne's parents die every like, couple months so vividly. We see violence <laughs> depicted on screen, and it's just so unnecessary. And, and in Coriata films, it's not needed. And Shoplifters is a perfect example of that. He trusts the audience to fill in the blanks, and we don't need to see like, these acts of pain or trauma.、Uh, but instead, we, we get the depth of the emotion still.、Uh, like, perfect examples are when Sh-、uh, Shota falls from the bridge. We don't need to see him writhing in pain.、Uh, what, what the point of the whole movement was was him standing up for his,、um, his sister,、uh, Lynn. And so when he falls from the bridge, all we see is the oranges rolling away. And it's just such a beautiful masterstroke、uh, to the empathy he has, not only for his characters, but more importantly, the audience.、Um, because he, he tackles like, really challenging things like domestic violence and shoplifters, but he doesn't have to subject us or his characters to. Depicting that on screen, but what he does do is he uses ripe language and like honest, true lived in emotions. Like, it's hard for me to even talk about without、uh, tearing up, but the moment where uh, Lynn's uh, <laughs> chosen mother hugs her and says, This is what you do when you love someone, you instantly know the pain that both of them have gone through. And the warmth that this hug gives to them and they have in that moment is just so lived in and so pure. And it just also speaks to the performances and intimacy that Coriata gets in all of his films, whether it's Lily Frank and,、uh, or, or Kira and Kiki,、um, kind of all stars and、uh, Coriata's troupe that reappear in some of his films.、Um, but to, to the children who are like, who I've never seen before,、uh, just deliver such lived in. And、uh, well observed intimacy and emotion. And it's just, it's just a beautiful film. I think it's a perfect little object、um, of a thing that really gets at like, what is a family. But yeah, I love this movie and I want anybody and everyone to see it and love it because I think it is so universal in its emotion. 
All right, Hirokazu Koreeda's Shoplifters tells the story of a group of people living in Tokyo and living in poverty, uh, and also, as the title suggests, they shoplift to survive. As the story unfolds, we learn a lot about each character and their motivations, and we learn kind of the secrets of the family and how they operate. Uh, and in the end, we learn even more secrets, and, and the ending is really pretty breathtaking. Um, so along those lines, I want to say, if you haven't watched Shoplifters, you know, it's it's got a lot of kind of revelations throughout it, even at the beginning. So we're going to talk about some things. Uh, we're basically going to just be spoiler spoilerific the whole time. So I really would recommend going, watching it, watch it on Hulu right now, uh, because there's some kind of first act revelations that, you know, wouldn't technically maybe be a spoiler because you, you could read it online. But I was surprised when I first watched it and I um, would love to, you know, pass that on. So here's your spoiler warning. Um, go watch shoplifters and then come back and listen. Uh, but yeah, I highly recommend it. It's a great, great movie. Um, all right. So yeah, let's get into it. So Amaya, I know you've seen this more than once. Um, how has it aged for you? I, I would say it's aged really well. I think this was the first creative film that I saw. And so mm-hmm. after seeing it and I went and I've now seen a couple others. And so watching it again, I was able to, um, to appreciate it sort of in the context of a, of a limited filmography. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, and, it it's a subtle film, right? His style is very subtle. Um, and yeah. I think that you just pick up on different things, watching it more than once. Um, and you can appreciate the acting more and the, the nuance mm-hmm. and the structure and just the way that information is revealed throughout the film. Um, it, 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 and it, it rewards rewatching. Yeah, absolutely. I've seen it just twice now. I watched it. Um, I don't know, probably in twenty early twenty nineteen, I think, uh, and I, I just heard buzz around it and um, really, really liked it. And yeah, I liked it even more the second time, kind of knowing more about it. Um, yeah, all the performances are, I think, just fantastic. And it is, it has that subtlety. I saw people as I was researching a little bit. People like to call him like a modern day Ozu, which we uh, on, on a previous podcast episode talked about Tokyo story and uh with a separate guest but um yeah I can definitely see some parallels there as far as the subtlety goes and um yeah it's kind of minimal in a way um but I think it feels more I don't know I think about Ozu it it feels it feels very cinematic um in in like a I don't know like the framing of shots and things like that whereas this is a little bit more uh like a realism style and not that Ozu is not realistic but um I don't know. It feels, it feels very modern and feels, uh, yeah, very realistic. Uh, but it is very moving. Um, I think one of the, the things that I kind of like the most about it is the most compelling for me is kind of the way it deconstructs the idea of family and like nuclear family. Um, and so here's that, that first act revelation, you, you meet this group of people and they very much seem like a family. We've got a grandma and a mom and dad and, um, kids or like a teenage daughter but then you learn pretty quickly that they're not uh, related at all. And they're all kind of misfits that have come together. Uh, and that ends up being, you know, kind of the main thing this is about. Um, so that, that story begins when they take in this little girl whose name is Yuri. We find out it's actually Jury, and then they change it to Lynn. Um, but she's basically an abusive situation and, they decide to to bring her in and um yes so yeah throughout it then they start talking about you know maybe it's better if you choose maybe it's better if you choose your family uh which i think the idea of a chosen family is kind of an interesting 
cultural thing right now too. But uh, yeah, do you have a favorite moment or, or th- thing around that idea of a family that this this film deals with? I think, um, and th- this I think this this comes from my research when I was mm-hmm. reading about um, sort of the process of the casting and the roles. And um, but the mother character Sakura, uh, so the mother character played by Sakura Endo, um, mm-hmm. she has a scene. Uh, towards the end of the film mm-hmm. where she's being interrogated yes. and she's asked um, if she was ever, if she ever wanted to be considered a mother. Right. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And she starts crying. And so uh, what I was reading was that in the script, that wasn't in the script. The interrogation scene wasn't in the script. I, the, the scene was in the script, but that line of dialogue, that mm-hmm. question was not. Wow. Um, and it was sort of in conversations with her that Corey um, decided to add something um, about that because she noticed in the script that, you know, the father character wants to be called dad or father. Mm-hmm. And there was nothing like that for her character. Yeah. And so apparently like when they, sh- when they shot that interrogation scene, he handed the question to the actor who was uh, the policeman without telling her what he was doing. Wow. And so like the tears just kind of came naturally because she had been thinking about this moment, I guess, and thinking about um, the idea um, previous to that. And so like, it's just everything that she brought to the role just kind of came out at that, in that scene. That is fascinating to know because I mean, that scene is for me and probably for a lot of people, it's, it's like the best scene in the movie. I think it's really moving. Her performance is, is incredible there. So yeah, knowing that context is that's so interesting. Um, but yeah, I was going to mention that scene as, as, um, she's asked something about, uh, so, so apart from that question about motherhood, she asked something about, um, when, so again, spoiling, <laughs> spoiling this, but, uh, when the grandmother dies and they bury her, she's asked about that. Like, did you throw her away? Why did you just throw her away? And she says, I didn't throw her away. Someone else threw her away. I, I found her. And she, the way she, um, she kind of repeats it almost like she's trying to convince herself of it. Which I think is really interesting. I also love the moment. This is much earlier on when it's kind of Yuri's transformation into Lynn. They burn her clothes and give her a haircut. And as they're, they're kind of around this fire, um, she has this beautiful moment where she says, if they, if they hit you, they didn't really love you. And, um, here's what you do for a, a person that you love. This is what you do to a person that you love. And she's like hugging her and kind of swaying. And it's, that's just such a beautiful moment. And then, yes, then at the end in that interrogation scene, they, um, yeah, they ask her about motherhood and, and something about, I can't remember the exact, the exact words, but it's basically just because you have a kid doesn't make you a parent, doesn't make you a mother. And, uh, and then you find out in that moment too, that, she is unable to give birth, right? And she's barren in some way. Um, they say, I understand it's tough that you can't give birth. And then she gives, yeah, this face of kind of anger, but then moves into just being emotional and, and kind of upset. Um, yeah, it's, and she said, they say, oh, were you jealous? Is that why you kidnapped, kidnapped her? And um, yeah, she just goes through a lot of emotions right there. So yeah, I think that's really an interesting idea of, um, her Yuri's natural born parents perhaps are less parental than, um, than this chosen family that she found. And, you know, not that I, I would advocate the situation that's happening here. And Corieta said something like that too. Like, 
like he's not saying this is the way things should be, but by by looking at it this through this lens, you can make some really interesting um, just parallels to real familial relationships. And um, what, he also mentioned that um, a lot of adoptive families reached out to him and said how much they loved the movie. Um, and actually, so here's a, a personal connection. My son, we have adopted, and uh, a few years ago. Yeah, I definitely had this this sense of uh, I don't know, just, it's very moving. Like when you have a family that you've kind of helped to to build apart from, um, I, maybe it doesn't even come down to like adoption. But I'm thinking about the intentionality because one thing that you hear we hear just the Yuri's you know biological parents fighting um, towards the beginning, and they say something like, uh, first of all, who knows where the real father is?" Is what we hear the dad say, and as he's in anger. And then one of them says, I didn't want to have her either. And so there's like, there's an amount of choice in that. And so it's kind of a very complicated situation, obviously. Um, but the fact that this movie is playing with all those different aspects of family, I think is just really interesting. And um, it's really a strong, a strong reflection on that. Um, so having not seen a ton of Koreeda movies, actually, this is the only one I've seen. Uh, we're going to watch another one for the next episode. But is family something he comes back to in the movies you've seen as well? Yeah. So he he's described his career as, as being sort of in three um, eras, mm-hmm. right? And so he describes the first era of his film as being of his career as being from the period of time he started, where he was making documentaries in the in the late eighties, mm-hmm. um, and then he started making feature films. After that, the second era starts. He says really with um, I think uh, with still walking maybe mm. um, and like that's when he really starts to make these films that are examining uh, familial units mm. um, and they start really with if you watch something like um, like father like son or still walking um, some of these themes like adoption um, are like raising children that aren't biologically your own mm-hmm. um, are addressed uh, or like with father like son the, the issue is uh, these parents with two different parenting styles um, who are raising sons that were switched at birth. Right. Mm. And so early in that film, we find out about that and we, and they have to sort of address um, their preconceived notions about being a father. Mm. Um, and then, so like still walking, or, excuse me, not still walking, but shoplifters is sort of the culmination of the second era of film, um, which he says is, you know, um, the end. And so like with the truth, which we'll talk about next time begins the, like, the, next the third one. era yeah. of his filmmaking career. Um, and so yeah, he's also sort of talked about uh, trying to make films that intentionally highlight um, the members of society of Japanese society mm-hmm. that are outcast. Yeah. Um, he makes f- films that highlight uh, crime, um, even though Japan, Japan is a relatively low crime society. Mm-hmm. Uh, but there are these people who are overlooked. And so he's just trying to like highlight them in their stories. Um, and then like his style, you know, in terms of the way he uses the camera, I think is rooted in that documentary background. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So everything is like the, the frame is composed, but it's less modeled or, or yeah. It doesn't or feel as polished. Than like, yeah. Was, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. yeah. That's really interesting. So he, um, I saw in the interview I talked, uh, I, I was able to watch, it was a Q&A at, at Con actually, mm-hmm. and he 
said something about the, he likes to explore the friction between Japanese society and the family. And, and so, yeah, that seems like this would be very much in line. And, and I even saw one thing saying this is sort of, yeah, the culmination of, of those themes. And so, yeah, this is, I guess, the end of that, that triad, as you mentioned. So we'll, we'll jump into the next one with the next episode with the truth, which is also his first English language film, I believe. So, Yes, that's very interesting. Um, I thought we might just talk through each of the family members because they each have a really kind of fully realized um, journey and um, different kind of desires and motivations. And um, so let's start with with that mother character. Who, so her, we find out, so it's confusing because we look at IMDb and they have one name listed, but they all have a uh, an alias as well that we kind of know them as. Um so Naboyu uh, is the mother character, Sakuro Ando, and she, yeah, is so interesting. So we, yeah, we find out, as I mentioned at the end, that she's not able to have children. Uh, we also find out that the, the reason uh, that she and um, her husband or partner, and it's not clear if they're actually married, are sort of the the main. I guess they, the core members of this family, uh, it seems like they started it and we find out that it was a, a crime of passion. That's what the uh, detective says that she, she and uh, Osamu, who is Lily Frankie's character, the, the dad in this murdered her previous husband uh, and ran off together. Um, at least that's what's claimed and it's never made clear if that's a hundred percent true, but I mean, I kind of assumed it was, based on how it's presented. Um, but yes, yeah, so she, yeah, clearly has this drive to kind of maternal care. Uh, and, and I really like the, the relationship she has with, um, Aki, the, the younger woman, they have an interesting dynamic. And then, um, the, the affection that she and, and Osamu have, uh, is, is really interesting as well. There's a, um, well, well, we'll talk about this, I guess, when we get to talking about him, but there's an interesting discussion with him about how they're connected. Um, but yeah, I think so. she and the grandmother have lots of conversations. They're, they're the primary ones talking about this idea of chosen family. Uh, and yeah, it's just really interesting. We find out that um, they are living here basically and, and sharing grandmother's pension. I don't know. I guess I'm getting into grandma a little bit. So anything else you want to say about uh, Sakura Ando's character uh, in this film? She's definitely one of my favorite characters. Um, this actor, I think she's phenomenal. Mm. Um, you know, she comes, uh, she comes from an acting family, like mm. uh, our family of actors and directors, her sister's an actor. Um, she's only 34, which I thought was odd like I, yeah. I i the first time i watched it i didn't even think about it but now i was just trying to figure out what else she was in and yeah. i saw that she was born in 1986 uh which kind of just blows my mind yeah that's um, wild uh but her like just the, the journey of that character um uh and like i i she's not the moral center of of the film because mm. that's uh shoda i mm. think yeah i would but, agree yeah but she is the one who sort of starts some questioning things um, mm-hmm. really like he, cause she's the one who initiates the conversation where she asked him sort of like how he started learning about shoplifting or what he was told about shoplifting um, yeah. as an act and sort of starts this, this, the route down questioning um, more deeply what it is he's actually doing yeah. um, and how he got there. I was going to say, this is the first film that she uh, has made with Corey Ada, 
Mm. where some of the other actors in the film have worked with him before. Yeah, including Lily Frankie, I think. So let's talk about him now. Um, he plays, yeah, the quote-unquote dad of the family. Um, his name is Osamu Shibata. And he's he's a, a really charismatic guy. And yeah, as you mentioned, he's worked with Coriator before. In the Q&A I watched, they, they talked a little bit about that and just kind of being on the same wavelength with projects and stuff. Um, he's in like Father Like Son, is that right? Mm-hmm. Okay. Yes. And he's interesting. He's kind of comedic in this. Like he's he's funny. Uh, he yeah, he desperately wants for Shota to call him dad, um, and he doesn't until the very very end, which is which is an interesting moment. We should probably talk about. Um, but yeah, he's the I guess the primary drive behind the shoplifting. Uh, at the very opening scenes, we see him and and Shota shoplifting at this grocery store, and he has all the philosophy about it too about. Um, you know, th- he says things in stores don't belong to anyone yet. And then it, and it's okay as long as you, they don't go bankrupt, um, which is an interesting kind of moralizing there. But his, uh, yeah, the, the scene I was mentioning where he's talking to um, Aki, the, the young woman that lives with them. And she asks them, you know, when do you and Noboyu have sex? Um, because of the, they're kind of all living in this small house. Uh, and he says something like, we're connected in our hearts or in our minds or something like that. We're not connected down here. Any kind of points. <laughs> that was a really funny line. And of course, later there is a sex scene between them, which is really sweet actually. Um, but it's, uh, yeah, he, he just has, he's always philosophizing kind of about, you know, here's how life works. But um, yeah, I, I really like his performance too. I, he's, he's phenomenal in this, I think. Yeah. What, what's your impression of his character? Uh, I think part of part of the, his goofball personality is just part of his natural nature, which I think mm. why he's a fit. Um, he plays um, a similar sort of like re- relatively laid back father figure and like yeah. father, like son, or at least con- in contrast to the other character. That's also the, um, the father. Uh, he's also in our little sister, which I have not seen yet. Um, and after the storm. So he's worked with Corieta at least four times. So I think that's enough to call him like a regular, but uh, I also, like the idea that he doesn't have um, his character in the film doesn't have a lot of background in terms of his education. You know, he talks yeah. about mm-hmm. not being able to speak English and saying that his Japanese is actually worse. Mm. But he knows how to live on the street, um, and so like there are a certain set of skills that he's um, acquired, yeah. and he's sort of passing them down. Um, and so to like to kind of like to um, more broadly overall, um, he is a good father you know, Mm -hmm. but for his circumstances of being poor, Mm. um, he's caring. Um, they're a tight family. They care about each other. They take care of each other. They provide as best they can. Um, and they're really just living. I don't want to use the word victim, but they're just, you know, their circumstances are such that they're poor. And Mm -hmm. so that they, the things that they do are a result of, uh, navigating poverty. Yeah. And I think that that's important that it comes through, so so strongly early on is is that warmth that you're talking about like the reason they really seem like a family is because they really seem like they love each other and like the, the relationships seem really tight like you mentioned uh, i love the scene early on where shoda has run off and he it seems like he goes to this empty car kind of an abandoned car nearby uh and we later find out that he was found in a car that's where he was kind of rescued from um but then as they're leaving he asks him to call him dad and he doesn't do it but then as they're leaving they kind of stop and 
I don't know if they have a ball or something like they're playing in this kind of lot and the camera really lingers on this really big wide shot of them playing and it's just so touching and I, I think that's one of the moments early on where I, was, I really was keyed into like again my first creative movie is like this guy really knows what he's doing this is a really good moment um, but yeah I, I think his character is really great yeah and I mean that scene you know he has a fractured foot that's right. You know, yeah. but he's still willing to mm-hmm. go out there and play and throw the ball around and run on it just mm-hmm. to pacify this child. Oh, yeah. There's another great moment with him. He so he's works in construction. Of course, he gets injured at the very beginning. So he kind of stops working. But we see him on the construction site once and they're building an apartment building. And he walks in all by himself to this empty apartment that's like, you know, half built. And he just goes into this little role play talking to Shoda. who's not there, but he's just like playing out this father-son thing all by himself. And I thought that was a great like little character touch that like he really, that's his, his heart is to, is to be a father figure to, to show that he really does love show that much. And um, he's just like kind of a sweet guy, you know, and, and, and he, that comes out in that, that nice little moment. Yeah. Let's talk about the grandma figure who is uh Hatsue is her name and uh, played by Kieran Kiki, who, I'm, I was unfamiliar with, but at the Q&A, they talked about her as, you know, a long-standing Japanese actor, and um, and, and Corriota talked about her, her presence and her, um, her just willingness to to do whatever for the movie, which I thought was interesting. But her character is great, so she, uh, yeah, they're all living off her pension. She says that they're her insurance policy because she doesn't want to die alone. She's widowed. And, um, so that in itself is really kind of beautiful, I think. So I think even greater than family, this movie is kind of about human connection and kind of the desire for connection. And I think that we'll get to that a little more with Aki's character, but, um, she, the grandmother, uh, yeah, so they're sharing her pension and they, they talk about the how much money that is monthly and all of that. And then when she dies, how much money that she has in her account that they, um, you know, split up and Shota feels kind of sketchy about that. Um, I think that probably contributes to his actions towards the end. But but then the other interesting thing is that um, Hatsue visits her. So I guess widow. So he is dead. I think maybe you can kind of cast some clarity on this, but her husband ran away with another woman and she goes and visits their children, which is an interesting connection. And and she kind of plays up this um, poor old lady kind of, I, I just need someone to talk to kind of thing so that they will give her money. Uh, and, and every time she visits, they give her an envelope of cash and we see her leave. And so it's, it's kind of like not clear if she's like, playing an act here at, at first and then she leaves and she says only 30k and she's like mad and so we kind of uh, kind of lets us behind the curtain which is a great moment but yeah did i get that family dynamic right yeah so her husband ran off with or had an affair hmm. um and sort of another family and aki is hmm. his granddaughter right so right. okay th- so then there's there's also this thing where she is pretending to be in another country in australia right um but I, I actually was not clear on whether or not they knew that she was yeah, it's, not it's there. It's been ambiguous. From, uh, and to what I, extent? Yeah, I, I was going to say, I thought they really didn't know. At the end, it really calls that into question because um, that, that's when it comes out that, you know, she finds out that grandma was getting money and all of that. But I think that they really didn't know. But what it shows is that, like, 
they are a tight knit fam like familial unit that cares about each other, but they're also they all have their side hustles mm-hmm. um that they use to like supplement their income and sort of make the finances work. Yeah. Um but the, res- the result of that is that people get hurt, right? Because yeah. Aki mm-hmm. was then like, wait, was our relationship only because of this yeah. financial element or did she really mm-hmm. care about me or like what was going on there? Um, but yeah, the actor, she's uh, also been in several of Corietta's films. Um, she's also in a film called Sweet Bean, which is one of the few films that I've seen by a Japanese woman that was directed by a Japanese mm-hmm. woman. Um, and she's also done some, I think, uh, some stuff that I haven't seen in a long time, like like uh, a film called Pistol Opera, mm. which is like this pop action Japanese film. But interesting, she, I think this was one of the last films that she made because she died in 2018, I think. Oh, really? I didn't know that. Mm. Wow. Yeah, so her her relationship with Aki is, is, is really interesting. As you mentioned, like they, they have an affection too that's really sweet. And then... Um, yeah, again, it's all kind of called the question. And speaking of all the side hustles, so yeah, we kind of see that with um, the dad with his shoplifting, with the mom. She steals things at work. We didn't even mention her job, but she um, works in a laundry, some sort of laundry processing facility. And she and her coworkers, too, kind of steal things. And then what's really moving about that is that her boss says, you or her have to leave this job. We can't keep you both on. You guys have to decide. And, which is a terrible thing to do as a boss in the first place. But mm-hmm. then um, her coworker basically blackmails her because they know about Yuri. And um, so that and she, she sacrifices her job, you know, for the sake of Yuri, which is, is really touching, I think, and, and kind of furthers that maternal, like she has real, takes real action as, as a makeshift mother. Her response, I was going to say there was just her response to that threat is one of the most mm-hmm. like underplayed, yeah, but mm-hmm. like believable things, you yeah. know, just mm-hmm. like saying, if you tell, I will kill you. Yeah. And I'm like, she, she's probably serious. Like that, yeah. that's the mm-hmm. first hint that you get that like, oh, there's something else that's going on. Yeah. Here. There's like a, a darker um, side. Yeah. Yes. That's a really remarkable scene. I think I would say back to the grandmother though. I think it's notable that you know in the beach scene, she's the one that lays out the idea mm-hmm. that sometimes it's better to make your own family, which is what yeah. they've done in that, mm-hmm. in that sense. Yeah, and then so so as we mentioned, she dies. But at that beach scene as well, which the beach scene is kind of the I think the more maybe the kind of the iconic scene. Um, and they they feel like such a family, and that's actually kind of the beginning of the end too. You find out, um, but Grandma has this moment where she just looks out and says thank you to no one in particular. They're all at the beach, and she's looking at them, and it seems like she's you know that's making maybe a whispered prayer or something. But I thought it was really a touching moment. And then Corieta said in the Q and A I watched that that was not scripted. Like she she ad libbed that, which how great is that? That's beautiful. Well, let's talk about Aki, the uh, the older you know quote unquote daughter. She is. Um, yeah, really affectionate with grandma, which is interesting. We see their their uh, relationship is is really tight at the beginning, so that it is really moving when that's called into question at the end. But then she also uh, her job is interesting. So she works in like I guess a, a sex club of sorts. So she uh, basically she and the other dancers where she works. Um, they have like one-on-one interactions, but there's a, a sheet of like one-way glass in between them. So I guess they're safe in that way. Um, but then people come and, and watch them and, and they communicate like she communicates with uh, one client in particular 
whose name is Mr. Four, is what he goes by. And uh, he holds up a sign and they kind of communicate a little bit. Or I guess he can hear her. But then he, he writes things on a piece of paper and holds it up. And then at one point, um, she says, we can go to, what's the name of the room? Like the other, like the feelings room or something like that. The talking room. I can't remember what they call it. Um, do you remember? I don't remember the name of the room, but yeah, it seems like it's like an extra service that you can get where you have some physical contact with the girls. Yes. Chat room. I just found it the chat room. So I guess I could have yeah. <laughs> thought of that. But yeah, so they, uh, so she says, do you want to go to the chat room after having him as a client? It seems like she's known him for a while. We see two, two interactions between them, uh, but they said, do you want to go to the chat room? And they do. And um, he just kind of lays his head in her lap and they just talk or she talks and he's silent. And then we find out, and, and I wanted to ask you, is the implication there that he has, he's mute in some way or he has, um, some sort of voice problem? Yeah. I thought it was just like a stutter, like a, a severe stutter or something that, um, makes it difficult for him to connect with people outside yeah. of the context mm-hmm. of this, of the, of the, this environment. Yeah, and that's where I was going with that is that that connection, and and you see where she is longing for that as well because as they're I guess leaving the chat room, he s- sort of communicates a little bit, and that's where we realize that his um, he he's not able to speak or has a um, communication issue of some kind, and then they share this really tender hug that um, again it, this is one of the kind of the more moving moments is it just really lingers and it and it's it's almost not sexual it seems to me like it's yeah, just this longing for connection that, that they're both are feeling. Uh, and maybe that's part of, I don't know, maybe criticism of modern society. I'm not sure, but uh, it's really a beautiful moment. I really, I really like that scene. Yeah. I mean, it's not sexual. I think and then that like, you know, at this particular club, they're not even allowed to stick their fingers down their underwear. Right. right? Yeah. Um, and it seems like there's, there's no nudity. So it's all, it's suggest suggested. Yeah. Um, but I think sort of questioning the like a lack of empathy um, mm-hmm. or uh, an increase in loneliness in Japanese society is like a recurring theme mm-hmm. through several of the films. And it's definitely at play here. Um, like the fact that you would, you would need uh, a club or, mm-hmm. or something like this where you could go just to get a hug. Yeah. Um, mm-hmm. I think it's, is an indictment on that society. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I kind of am just curious about what her actual relationship with her parents are or yeah. why they think mm-hmm. she's in Australia. Was she ever there? Mm-hmm. Um, did she like go and come back or, or yeah. Cause they say and, they make like, some comment about how like, she even forgot to call last week or something like that, where she's like, she loves it so much in Australia is what they say. And whether or not that's a cover story, I guess is, is in, in question. Yeah. Yeah. But like, she's so like when she's has to question just the relationship between her and her grandmother, it just, it seems like it just devastates her. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, that 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 moment at the end, and then the moment with the the mother character, I think, are the most like like heartbreaking moments. Probably is um, that, and then probably too with the dad and Shota at the end. But yeah, she's a, she's a really great performance from Aki as well. And and there's something about her name her her real name is actually her sister's name or something like that. Uh, so they they've all again taken on these different aliases. But yeah, it's interesting. Yeah. So Yuri, as we mentioned at the beginning, she's, they find her outside of her parents, uh, like out on the balcony of her parents' apartment. Um, and they say she's out there again. So like clearly this has been going on and, um, 
they and when they bring her home because she's hungry uh, they find scars in her arms and find out she's being abused and all this and um and then to decide to take her in so i think her she's kind of our way into the family like we kind of see things through her eyes because she's kind of learning um, how they operate and and learning what Shoda's like and all that as, as she kind of experiences it. Uh, I should also mention she's probably the cutest little girl ever. <laughs> like she's so <laughs> adorable. Uh, it was actually on the Q&A that I watched. She and uh, Aki, the, the uh, actor who plays Aki, are sitting next to each other. And you can tell she's kind of like um, uh, Aki. I can't remember Aki's real name. But she's kind of doing some work to like keep her occupied because like it's like an hour long thing and she's just sitting still, mostly not talking. Um, and so they're kind of like poking each other and like whispering secrets, which is just so cute. But anyway, um, yeah, so Yuri, um, she has a moment where she's burning her clothes and they let her decide. I think that's what's so interesting is um, they lay it out. And of course, you know not that this is in a in a in a vacuum um there's all kinds of power dynamics and should a child ever be put in the position to make this kind of choice of course not but uh in the context of this movie she um they say you can go back if you want and you you know the way back um and and kind of give her that option but she decides to stay with them which of course she would uh and they go shopping. There's a really nice moment where they're well shopping. They they steal the clothes. Uh, they they steal them, but they get her this bathing suit that she loves, and um, that's another moment when when Aki is talking to Mister Four. Um, she talks about her her little sister who loves to wear a bathing suit in the house, and it's so cute. Uh, so I think I, I, her and Aki have a have a good relationship as well. But Yuri's journey, she gets the new haircut, and then she. Uh, learns to shoplift from Shoda. And at first Shoda doesn't like that, that they're teaching her that. And I guess we can talk about that with Shoda's discussion, but she, um, yeah, just kind of bears witness to everything. And, and we kind of see, as I mentioned, through her eyes and learn what's going on. But yeah. What, what's your impression of Yuri? Yeah. I think first of all, like once we, once it's revealed the extent of the abuse that she suffered, mm-hmm. like um, there's this scene where we see the scar from like an iron or something yeah. that, that has been pressed against her flesh um, or the way she reacts to the um, prospect of getting new clothes. She says, is she going to get hit? Yeah. You know? And that's when uh, the mother says that line about people who love you don't hit you. They, mm-hmm. and like when she's, when she's telling her this, she's embracing her and they yeah. say, they hold you like this. And then she calls it tighter and squeezes her. Um, and I think that's where, even though the film as a whole, I think tries to remain somewhat objective. Mm-hmm. Um, it's also like building this case for like families can, you can make families mm-hmm. um, that are more powerful than these blood relations. Yeah. And it's in how you treat people and how you connect with people. Um, and I think her character shows like how you can, um, she's like this audience surrogate because you know, we come into the family with her. Mm-hmm. Right. And so we get to see um, how you become ingratiated into this mm-hmm. new dynamic. Yeah. And I think it's when we first realize that she has the choice. That's when it's made, mm-hmm. it, at least when I first realized that explicitly, like, Oh, none of these people are related uh, because that's when I think mom and grandma have a little short discussion about um, choosing mm-hmm. and saying, maybe it's stronger when you choose that kind of thing. Um, so the very, very end of the movie, we'll talk about Shota's decision because he's kind of, I guess the climax, but like the final shot is, um, she's back on her balcony. We see her with, she's back with her biological mother. 
She's not happy about it. It's clear, I think. And then at the very end, she's on her balcony again. And it, it seemed to me that she like makes a motion like she's going to jump over. Is that your interpretation of the ending? Uh, I don't think my interpretation is that bleak. I, th- <laughs> I think she's sort of looking out and maybe thinking back um, to this other experience that she had. Uh, but I don't, I don't think she's quite old enough. Right. I didn't mean jump over as in like jump, jump off. Like I thought, (laughs) I thought she was like jumping out to escape and go back. (laughs) I guess that should have been clear. I can't remember how high up she is (laughs) because originally she's on like the ground floor, but it does seem in that final moment that she's higher up. So yeah, maybe (laughs) I just misinterpreted that, but I I definitely had a feeling at the very (laughs) least that she's longing for that. But then I thought that was she like trying to, trying to leave again and, and find something better. I don't know. Oh, right. But it's, 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 it is, depressing though like for how quickly they slide back into these old roles right yeah. mm-hmm. um and so like when they when they initially try to take her back um after they fed her the first thing they witness is that oh her parents are in an argument mm-hmm. um and and then you know later on um when she's back with her mother the first thing that she does she does that we see um when the cameras aren't on is they start to ignore her mm-hmm. Um, and her mother has been hit too. Like she's yeah. like trying to conceal a mark on her face with makeup. And so even though this is her biological, um, these are her biological parents. It's just not necessarily the best situation for her. Mm-hmm. Um, but it is what is the, what the state says is correct. Right. Um, yeah. Yeah. It's, it's interesting. I think it's a strong, uh, yeah, a lot of strong emotions in that ending. And, um, and just, I think for me, like the takeaway is just like the, the, such a strong realization of the way kids need love and, and how important that is. Uh, yeah. And so like that, that scene where she's hugging her around the fire and saying like, this is what you do if you love someone that's like, I found it on YouTube and that's like, if I need a good cry, just put on that 30 second clip because it's so, it's so touching to me. Uh, and I think she, so yeah, I've showed as the moral compass. Like, I think Yuri is maybe like the emotional, um, center of this or like i think most of the the strong emotions are around what's going on with her i guess she's she's kind of driving the plot anyway like her story is kind of the the story that is uh kind of conspiring but um transpiring is the word i'm looking for transpiring but yeah let's let's talk about shoda so he's the son he's um I don't know, like nine or 10 years old. Like he's, he's pretty young and he, first of all, great little actor. He's really great in it. Um, and he has this relationship with his dad with the first scene is them shoplifting together is clearly a thing they do together. Um, he, he doesn't want to call him dad. Um, uh, he's really resistant to that. Um, and it's not exactly clear why. And then you have, or you kind of find out more about why maybe, but, um, he, is a great kind of big brother to Yuri, which is, is really sweet. And he doesn't want her to shoplift at first. He, he says something like it's, it's cause this is a guy thing. Um, but I got, I had the sense that he wanted to protect her innocence. It, it was kind of my feeling around that. Um, but he, his decision at the end is kind of what makes everything unravel is, uh, and, and I think it is secondary to grandma dies he feels uncomfortable with him taking the money and hiding this big secret. And then he, so he basically um, gives himself up more or less. He, he does jump over the edge of a, a tall thing and breaks his leg during a obviously really clumsy shoplifting. We've seen him shoplift really expertly many times. And then in this one, he, he just kind of uh, obviously is doing this on purpose and um, then is in the hospital and, and 
people inquire and that's how everything happens at the end. But, um, he, yeah. So what's your impression of his character? And then we can talk about the, the final part of his story at the very end of the movie too. Yeah. I think that he, so I think initially, um, when the film starts and he's sort of resonant or hesitant, uh, to include Yuri on their, uh, shoplifting, um, exp- exploits, and, you know, initially he tries to portray it as sort of like he's being, he's jealous, right. Of having yeah. to split his time or, or affection with his father character. Um, but I think later on in the film, once he starts to question things, mm-hmm. especially uh, after the scene where, um, like where uh, the father tries the to breaks into the car. Yeah. Right. Right. Because that goes against the code that, mm-hmm. that he, tr- he has taught him. Right. Yeah. It's okay to still think from stores, um, because they don't belong to anybody yet, but here he is breaking into the car, and that sort of relates to the story of how he's, you know, you told me that you found me in a car, but were you really yeah. like doing something else? Like were you perhaps like stealing from the car, and then you saw me and you mm-hmm. took me? Like what was going on there? Um, and then I, you know, his transformation also coincides with his puberty, right? Because there's a scene at the beach yeah. where he's mm-hmm. staring at at um, Aki's breast. Uh, and then, so he gets this father son talk about how like that's normal and that's okay, which I, still goes into the column of him being a good father. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, I love that scene too. That, I think it's yeah. Mm-hmm. Like dad goals almost, you know, <laughs> but <laughs> I like that beach scene signals, you know, that's like the last scene with the grandmother alive. That's um, where we realize, okay, he's hitting puberty. So he's sort of changing and may, perhaps mm-hmm. rebelling a little bit. And he's starting to question things. Uh, and that like that pivotal that beach scene is sort of like the pivotal uh, moment in the film uh, where after that, everything sort of unravels for everybody. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, so his, yeah, I love that beach scene and, and the puberty talk is so interesting. Um, and then, uh, yeah. So I think that that car scene that you mentioned where he, he kind of calls into question the moral code and then he just questions everything about how he even joined this family. And I think that, yeah, that's the kind of the road to his, his action at the end. Um, so then in the conclusion of the movie, we see, um, mom's in jail. She took the fall because she has less of a record and it's less time for her. Um, and then dad is just living by himself. Um, but he's able to see Shoda at the orphanage, um, where he's now living and he like comes in, they spend the afternoon together and then he ends up spending the night there which is against the rules, but he kind of, it's kind of this cute little mischievous, yeah, it's fine, whatever, kind of a moment. And then he gets on the bus to leave and then dad runs after the the, the bus and says, Shoda, Shoda, and, you know, that the bus doesn't stop or anything. But then Shoda looks back and then finally verbalizes dad, like thanks dad or something like that. Um, so wh- why do you think that is the moment that he finally kind of embraced that title? I think that he comes to an understanding. Um, I think that's also probably the last time that they see each other. Right. Mm. Yeah. Um, it's ambiguous too. as to whether or not. Um, so like before that they go to jail and they visit the mother and mm. she's giving him the information right. about if he wants it, how he can find his family. Um, and so it's ambiguous as to whether or not he's actually going to go do that. Mm-hmm. Um, but he has sort of realized that this period of his life is over. And even though, can't hear it it's important for him i guess to give the affirmation that like you know what you are my father for this period of time Mm -hmm. uh i think he did a you know he's like i think he did a good job um the best you could do but 
you also just have these human weaknesses that I guess you couldn't overcome. Yeah. Uh, because it, like in that period of time when he snuck away from the orphanage and they're staying together, they also had that conversation where um, he confirms that, yes, we were going to sneak away mm-hmm. in the night. Right. Um, and to avoid getting caught. And, and that's like the last thing, like the last crumbling piece of the infrastructure that sort of held them together because he realizes like, okay, I too am disposable. Yeah. Um, yeah, I agree. I think it's it's kind of like finally seeing this father figure in in context and like seeing his flaws and and then still coming to accept him, even though you're not going to see him anymore. Like it's and it's kind of that thing of like the people that you really love, you you know, accept the good and the bad. And I think it's a, an interesting way to to demonstrate that that he. So I think for years, kind of blindly trusted this father figure, even though he was had some emotional block about calling him dad. But now that he knows the full story and um, I think he sees that this this father figure really does love him uh, and yet is doing the best he can and is very imperfect. Um, and so maybe that just kind of seeing getting the full picture of of his father's character and then being able to accept him as a as a person and really love him, uh, even as they're saying goodbye. Yeah, it's a, it's really a nice, a nice moment. And it surprised me. I didn't I, you know, I kind of thought when we find out that he's reticent about saying dad, are we going to, is that going to play out in the drama? But I think by the end of the movie, it was like almost over. I kind of let that go. And so that, that was really surprising and and touching. Yeah. Well, I think that from there, is there anything else we need to say about Corrieta as a filmmaker? Because, so we're going to move into, again, his kind of final phase or third phase of filmmaking. As uh, we look at next time's movie, which is the truth but uh, yeah. So any other kind of creative facts we should know? What do you think of my, so I, I would say that one in terms of his role in contemporary Japanese cinema, uh, obviously he's one of the most celebrated. Mm-hmm. He often gets compared to Ozu. There's another Japanese director that he references as an influence. And that's Mikio Nerus, mm-hmm. who was a contemporary of Ozu and Kurosawa. And he made a number of films, including films like, um, when a woman ascends the stairs and a film that I saw on the Criterion channel called yearning. Hmm. Uh, and the thing about Nerus is that uh, he, he made a lot of, uh, of these women's pictures or that there are these movies that explore the role of women in Japanese society um, in this post-war period. Um, but he is an nihilist. So they all have these sort of like subtly bleak endings. Mm. Um, and I think that's something that you see in some of Corrieta's work as well. He also references a number of uh, European directors. So like Ken Loach uh, is one um, whose work I'm not familiar with, but he says one of his favorite films is Kiss, uh, which I think is, is about a boy at a boarding school who doesn't have any friends. And he uh, ends up befriending like a hawk or something. Huh. I just watched the trailer for it last night. Um <laughs> Uh, but he also has like, um, it's interesting because like I said, he started as a documentary filmmaker and he was making these films uh, for Japanese television. Um, he wanted to be a novelist and he gets in the film and he has this relationship with the government that is not, it's not necessarily like hostile, um, but he, he thinks it's important to say at, at an arm's distance mm. away from them, yeah. lest you be co-opted for propaganda purposes. Mm. Um, I have, let's see, it's a quote um, this is, is uh, from an interview that was published in a, a box set called a flesh and blood that was published by um, BFI. Okay. And he's asked, okay. So he, he was 
um, after the success of shoplifters, you know, he was invited um, to meet with the prime minister, um, which he declined. And he sort of talks about how um, the relationship between filmmakers and even athletes and government needs to be such that you don't get co-opted for political purposes. And he said, I'm a filmmaker, but also a television person. My background is in TV and I feel concerned uh, about broadcasting situation in the sense that they don't criticize the current government at all at all. The media is failing to serve its true purpose and it's probably unheard of in the West that the heads of news outlets have lunch and dinner with the top government officials, um, politicians, the prime minister. Um, They ought to be in a position of criticizing, keeping check on the government, but they're not. And say, for example, a sportsman wins an award abroad, um, then the government congratulates that person by inviting him to the prime minister's office to take photographs uh, with him and sending the congratulatory message all that sort of thing that makes me feel sick. I don't understand why they don't feel more of a sense of danger. Mm. The arts and sports are prone to being used politically. Look back at Japanese history and it's important to cinema not get too close with the powers that be. Um, and I think, uh, actually maybe the U S and, and, um, Japan are more alike in that respect <laughs> yeah. than he realizes. Uh, <laughs> yeah. That has a lot of resonance right now, actually. And so I'm hoping to discuss the, the documentary, um, the way I see it in, in the next few weeks. And now we'll mm. absolutely, I'll, I'll try to bring that quote in again. Cause that's perfect. It kind of goes right in line with, yeah, just political powers and media and the way that relationship should work. Maybe. <laughs> uh, yeah. Anyway, that, yeah, that has a lot of resonance for 2020. Yeah. Um, yeah. And like the, so like the next question ends, um, do you feel that the film and perhaps he's, uh, they're talking about shoplifters he says, do you feel that this film and perhaps your films more generally create a picture of society that's heading in the wrong direction? Mm-hmm. And he says, maybe there's a bit of that, but I depicted just the positive thing. But if I de- depicted just the positive things about Japan, that would be nothing more than a tourist film, a promotional mm-hmm. film. I think you should have variety depict all sorts of things, but it seems that the criticisms and negative comments about this film since its release are mainly online. None of them seem to grasp the actual nature of the film. They don't seem to get the point. Um, Interesting. So there's just a couple, a couple of things. Um, there was another quote. I can't find it right now, but uh, maybe it'll come up again when we do the truth um, about how he just is trying to be honest in his films. Mm-hmm. I think he's responding to sort of like why uh, they can be kind of bleak at the end. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. This definitely does have a, I don't know, the ending of this film, as you mentioned, is bleak, I think. And it's um, <laughs> not as bleak as Yuri jumping <laughs> off a bridge, but um, it is, you know, things don't end the way we want. We've seen this warm relationship. But I was going to say, I think that when I think about this movie, I don't necessarily think about the end. I think about, and maybe this just like, I'm just an optimist. <laughs> I don't know. But I think about like the, the warmth of those relationships and the strong connections that they have. So like, as much as it doesn't have a happy ending, I think of it as like a, an emotionally positive experience for me to watch, but even just like the story I think is, is very, I don't know, full of love and that kind of thing. So I think of it as a, I don't know, happy movie is not the right word, but um, just a, it it feels, I think it's positive about human nature, maybe um, even Mm -hmm. as it, it shows systems falling apart, but yeah, I don't know. I really like shoplifters. I'm excited to watch the truth and, uh, and, and hopefully get to dig into some more creative stuff, uh, in the near future. 
Well, thanks again, Omaya, for joining us, and uh, we'll hear from you next time again um, for the truth. And then also, I'm having some, making some plans for the next season of the podcast. Uh, I'll announce hopefully something soon. I've kind of hinted at that on this episode, um, and we'll have hopefully a variety of guests, including Omaya, for one or two more episodes there. Um, but yes, back again for 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 the truth next time. Uh, so thanks again, Omaya. All right, thank you for having me. You are so welcome, and thank you so much for listening to Art House Garage. We've got a few years' worth of episodes now, and you can hear all of those in your podcast app of choice. If you want to support Art House Garage, you can leave a rating and review in your podcast app, or you can buy an Art House Garage t-shirt at arthousegaragecom shop. Stay in the loop about Art House Garage and the Arkansas film community by subscribing to our email newsletter by going to arthousegaragecom slash subscribe, or you can email me directly andrew at arthousegarage.com and of course follow on social media you can find us on facebook twitter instagram and letterboxd just search at arthouse garage in all those places and that will do it for this episode thank you again so much for listening and until next time keep it snob free